from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. If you do that, there, you don't have that, that tendency to think, oh, why did we get this? We need to get rid of that. There's no space for this. It, it really tells you the backstory of what was involved in, in the 1850s of getting a life-size marble sculpture from Rome to St. Louis. It actually is a, is a great dance between many concepts and many American narratives. Such fascinating, just random things in here. One of the things that I couldn't help but be struck by is you have a photo album from General William Tecumseh Sherman. What is in his photo album? Well, I'm Sarah Fenske. The oldest surviving library west of the Mississippi is 175 years old. The St. Louis Mercantile Library began celebrating that milestone earlier this year, unveiling a special exhibition devoted to its most significant holdings. It's titled A Nation, a City, and its First Library, Americana as a Way of Life at the St. Louis Mercantile Library. Now, last week, our producer Evie Hemphill stopped by to see the exhibit for herself. She got a tour from fine arts curator Julie Dunn-Morton. Julie started with a section devoted to important firsts west of the Mississippi. So this section will have something as serious as the first book of law, but also the first novel, the first sheet music, um, the first time the word St. Louis shows up on a map, uh, or even the first image of St. Louis known to be printed and that's actually on a $10 banknote. And Julie explained that the Mercantile Library's story is in some ways the story of St. Louis. Really, the Mercantile was living that time. We were founded in 1846. Our history, our collection building, just was right in the heart of that. And, and so that history of Americana is kind of our history. Again, that's Julie Dunn-Morton, and she explained that the library's process of acquiring pieces uh, goes back to the 19th century. A great example of how it does that work is Harriet Hosmer's marble sculpture, Beatrice Cenci. Like, this was um, a letter from Harriet Hosmer to Wayman Crow, who was one of the founders of the Mercantile Library and was also her primary American patron. And he arranged for the commission of the Beatrice sculpture and for it to come here from Rome. So it's that in a nutshell, like for me as an, as an art historian, you think about the interconnectedness of people, that this artist from Boston met this young woman at school from St. Louis. They become fast friends. The artist visits her here in St. Louis the friend's father becomes really inspired by this young woman's passion to be an artist and, and basically helps launch her career and then arranges for this sculpture to come here. So it comes from Rome to London to Philadelphia to Boston, may have been in New York, I'd have to check my details. And then it has to go by boat to New Orleans and up the river to us. And there's far more documents in our archive related to a thank you letter to the riverboat captain who brought the sculpture up from New Orleans. Um, yeah, it's just, it really tells you the backstory of what was involved in, in the 1850s of getting a life-size marble sculpture 
from Rome to St. Louis. And that is fine arts curator Julie Dunn-Morton speaking about the St. Louis Mercantile Library and its long history of extraordinary collections. Now, that exhibit detailing its first 175 years opened in April and should be open until at least next April. It's free and it's open to the public. And joining us today to talk more about it is John Hoover. He's the executive director of the St. Louis Mercantile Library. John, welcome. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And wasn't Julie great? You know, I was just thinking about her rendition of, of what happened in those days with with the Hosmer sculpture and how magnificent that was. But I think even more uh, striking these days is that at times uh, Rome institutions, European institutions, are always wanting to borrow our art, and that's one of the things that's highly desirable. So it kind of makes a full circle with the way that the the mercantile was given, and then it continues to give. So with that full circle, I want to go back to the beginning of that circle. Uh, this library was founded in, in 1846. Who did the founding? Well, it was, um, a lot of people wonder, well, what's the mercantile? What is that? It must be a business library. No, the early American libraries in this country, like this one, or the Boston Athenaeum, or the, the, the New York Society Library were founded by merchants, by people with the means. The Library Company of Philadelphia, company is a big word there. These were merchants, our, our business leaders, who had enough resources to put together to, to build a book collection for the community. So we were the first um, public library in that sense uh, in making these collections available that way. We, people pooled their resources in the, to, to let everyone have a chance to read. Hmm. So where was the earliest home of this establishment? <laughs> we were right down on the riverfront, literally Maine and, and Pine. And uh, that we were there for a year, and the, the founders thought, well, you know, this, we, we need to kind of move away. This does, this is, it was the old exchange building, not the merchants' exchange, but something older than that. Uh, we moved up to 4th Street. And it, it was a good thing we did because the building burned down in 1849 along with all, everything else with the, the fire. So we witnessed all of that. Then they, we had our eye on the Locust Street address where we resided for 150 years downtown. So this was for a long time a downtown St. Louis institution. Um, and from reading your foreword to this exhibit, this wasn't just a collection. What went on at this library in its early days? Well, it was, it was it almost, it was, it's what you would think of as a forum or an Athenaeum of, of many things. It was a lecture society, a debating society, a school. Uh, it was it was where people met to read and to learn and to discourse about oh uh, the the travelers that were coming through oh, I just when I you know my mind just is boggled you know I just get boggled to think about the people traveling into St Louis from the west and people moving from the east to the west and being in this 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 grand city that was right here at the epicenter and and they would meet in the library soldiers explorers um scientists um and the city uh founders would be that the fathers would be here uh uh and and um and mothers people we let women were admitted immediately you know it was it was just a great forum of the community for that time 
And was this a lending library at, at any point in its history, or was it always there to gather these things? It's always been a lending library. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was funny. Um, there was, it was called, a, we're known as membership libraries, some of the last surviving of these institutions. And our members are the, the core of, of our support. And um, for a, a $5 membership in those days, you could, um, you could have circulating um, uh, uh, privileges for the collection. And, uh, and then, uh, it's funny, we didn't raise those rates until 1958 when we doubled the price to $10. Oh. That was the Time Magazine put a headline out said overdue. It, it, the New Yorker, it, it caused a, a stir that such an ancient institution would, want to, would raise its rates, but everybody applauded that. And uh, so we did, we, we always had circulating collections as well as, as special collections. It's something very unique in library history that this frontier library, if you will, actually wanted to document and to collect for the for the future, as well as create a, a place where people could read the current literature. Sometimes that blends, because the first edition of Moby Dick now was read, and, and there as a new book, and then it became a rare book later. Hmm. You also have these, these fine arts. I imagine those weren't getting lent out uh, to members. <laughs> those were just there for the edification of people when they visited? Well, that's what's so wonderful about this place. You know, I mentioned some of the things that we did, like even a theater, even, a, you know, we had so many things going on. But the library really was founded on the collecting of books, papers, and art. We were the city's first art museum, the first art gallery. And now today, you know, as a research institution at, at UM St. Louis, and for all of these students, what we present are our research collections in, in rare books, papers, and art. Mm -hmm. And so it's really gone full circle. And those were the concentrating uh, factors that we've always had. You know, that's what's defined our institution. So you've been thinking a lot about this history, maybe even more so than usual because of this 175th year anniversary. When did you start thinking about this celebration and, and this exhibit uh, that honors it? Well, I worked here at the Mercantile for nearly 40 years. And I've directed it for about 30 of those years, but I, I never really, I always felt that when we turned 150, that that was a wonderful thing, the, the, first, the first cultural institution in the city to do that. I thought, well, 175 is when we're going to write. And, and write largely about the, the collections here for the future, for the staff, for the members, for the readers, for the general St. Louis population, and actually for, uh, for people in, in, um, in, in the rare book world. And what, what, so I've been thinking about this for 25, 30, 40 years. It's, just, it's, there's, it's always news to me when a, a great institution in a great city uh, turns a certain age. And um, maybe I probably won't be around to write the 200th anniversary history, but we'll have somebody doing that, too. I'm already thinking about it. <laughs> You're ready for the next one. Well, so this, this current exhibit, this is called A Nation, a City, and Its First Library, Americana as a Way of Life at the St. Louis Mercantile Library. What do you mean by Americana in that title? Well, 
you know, it's so interesting. A lot of some, you know, you may consider Americana might be sort of a, an object or a coin or a, a you know, a, 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 some sort of a sculpture on a, on a, a, of an American eagle. Yes, that's Americana, but Americana in the book world and the, and the world of manuscripts is, is, is really the narrative focus, the, the force of Americans taking down their accounts and their stories. And that actually is all. Can you you can move that forward to the brushstrokes of artists who were great American artists. And so, to me, it, it's it's really the 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 woven nature of this collection of how it's a very broad collection in terms of many subjects, but it's very very deep when it comes to American history because here we were you know, very early time in, in, a, in a city that was burgeoning, and we wanted to collect in this way to document American history and how St. Louis and its people and the people of America all sort of danced with us in terms of their, their, what they took down, what they wrote, what their narratives were. It's, it was never a surprise to me that the largest collections in this, in this institution were the, the old cutter E-class. That was, narr- that was narrative biography. Hmm. So people's stories, stories about the people who were in and around these parts. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the scope of this exhibition, um, showing off the highlights gathered in 175 years, this might feel a bit overwhelming to somebody coming <laughs> for the first time. Where would you suggest visitors begin? Well, excellent question. It's in nine galleries. It's in, the, it's in nine galleries and more. And um, I suppose the way we laid it out is pretty much th- that the the I think when one comes in and looks at first Americana has a lot to deal with firstness firsts and onlys like Julie mentioned the first book the first the uh, the first book of poetry the first time that Missouri or Mississippi occurred on a map that's on level two that's at the very beginning of this exhibition then one kind of walks down into the atrium. It's sort of like walking in the old Guggenheim Museum in New York. You're kind of going in circles all the way to level one. But the, but the second part are where the, 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 some only known copies of things are. And that, that would be something I'd see on the first trip, too. That's the narrative of the founding of St. Louis by Auguste Chouteau. The, the, there's, there's nothing like it in American history that a founder actually put something like that in words and writing, but also the uh, the the first the, the only known photograph of a lead line throw is is in is in the atrium. I'm sorry, uh, the only known photograph of what? Of a lead line throw. That's marking Twain. It's an image that was taken in St. Louis about 90 years ago of of a of someone on the river marking Twain for a steamboat. It's, it's a magnificent image, and a, uh, and a Rocky Mountain man's um, fur trade ledger from 1832. There's no, there's nothing else like that in existence, and <laughs> and we have that with uh, the Dewey defeats Truman photograph, which um, the Mercantile um, acquired when the St. Louis Globe Democrat went out of business. So it's one of the great photographic treasures of not just this institution but the country. So first, uh, and a Columbus letter. Those are the first and onlys, really, that, that we could offer into this city. So, something like that is very, very special. Those would be the way I would start. 
And then probably on the first day of maybe six or seven trips, I would, <laughs> I would go down. I would go downstairs and and look at the um, and look at the, the really the core of the exhibition: American people, their narratives and achievements. Where we where we sort of interwove famous people in St. Louis that had national um, influence and also influence here at the library to show how the library lived history with certain people from the very beginnings of its time. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our guest today is John Hoover, executive director of the St. Louis Mercantile Library. The library is the oldest surviving library west of the Mississippi. It's celebrating its 175th anniversary. It has a free exhibition open to the public uh, that shows highlights from its holdings. And there are so many highlights here. But John, we talked about the early days. The library was downtown. The library moved to the campus of the University of Missouri-St. Louis in 1998. That's a big change, much different space than being downtown. What led to that change? Oh, that's a excellent uh, to bring that up. Thank you, Sarah. The, we were we were really considered really part of the cultural heart of our area in on Locust Street. We're kind of that was the old financial district, and we I think our board was very very. Um, really proactive in noticing that even though we're really well known around the country and world uh, and we're used all the time and we're the go-to place for people to use us for, for their own other projects, other museums and institutions, we really weren't, we weren't being a student's library any longer. We weren't having the, the walkthrough with the, the usefulness in that part of town that we had had, say, in the 1870s or the 1920s. And it was always a busy place, but it wasn't becoming as busy any longer. And so our board really started to think about, well, how can we make that better? And I'm so grateful that uh, to a person they felt, let's get on a college campus. Let's see if a college campus would appreciate you know, these collections and how they could be made available in the broadest humanistic sense uh, to, um, to students of all kinds. And, oh, I'm so glad they did that. Every college and everybody wanted us, but, the U, but UM St. Louis worked out a very, very careful plan that, um, that made, made the library have, a, if you will, a future of growth and building the collections that we were always very good at. I have such talented curators and a dedicated ensemble and i'm i'm just one of 10 uh, library directors that had the same privilege to work with people who built this collection and we were building it all of us for the good of students so to ha- to be offered to be invited you know here to be in part of the UM St. Louis library system was just um 
uh, marriage made in heaven for us. And do you find that a lot of students, um, you know, people who aren't there for a specific research purpose, but students who just come down and are checking these things out for themselves? All the time, and basically, it's never. We're we're all back to this. Is our since the COVID pandemic really hit us all so hard? This is the first semester back where student. I'm seeing not only our students, but students from around the the city and uh, scholars from the country, all wanting to come in and use our collections once again. It's like a homecoming for us. You know, I guess a traditional fall homecoming for the students to be with us. Yes, I see that, and I see the great interest, and it seems as if the the, the tours of uh, prospective students, it seems like we're the first stop, really, hmm. for people to see the institution, and we invite everyone to do. It's a way that we can celebrate and honor the, the founders of this institution, who were remarkable people, far, far-sighted people, and by continuing to make these collections available to the widest number of students. So in addition to people who come by to check out the collections, you have continued to collect. Uh, You write in the exhibit catalog that the library is not, quote, caught in a time warp. You write, for a time spanning three centuries, the mercantile collected currently and often lived history. The library does so today. We preserved on the spot Ferguson window paintings on the boards covering riot-smashed windows. The mercantile immediately set about collecting the new city-county merger documents from a year or two ago to add to the many past attempts to unshackle city growth and progress, as well as newspapers across the world reflecting the stories of the age, pandemics, terrorism, disasters, and achievements. So how do you go about deciding what belongs in this much-vaunted collection? Well, space is always a, a big factor, but we've never let that scare us. You know, we've uh, we've always uh, we're 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 a broad and a deep collection, and we've never really had it. Some some great institutions, um, this is their decision, uh, not ours, but to to sort of have a cutoff date about what they would collect. One, one very great institution uses 1876 as a benchmark that way. Wow. We feel that we're very. Can you imagine though? We, we feel that that so much of American history, Americana was as much after that date as in the the years of the colonies and the early republic. We collected that, too. But what we wanted to do is to have a broad collection that really spans all aspects of of this nation and, and to some extent, world history as it relates to uh, a library in St. Louis collecting that and observing it. Do you continue to collect very old things as well? Well, my when one of uh, a few years ago, one of our donors said, "You know, John, you've always wanted one." We, see, we collect early printing. It's like it's something where people can study. We collect book arts. We want we co- we especially collect fine printing that relates to American history and American stories. But to to teach uh, fine printing, it's always good. To have incunabula, early printing, printing, printing of the of the earliest days, and uh, we were able to collect a binding fragment of a Gutenberg Bible leaf, mm-hmm. and that so that that's one of our earliest pieces. But you know, we have an Assyrian slab from three thousand years ago from Nineveh. Wow! <laughs> and we have so we we preserve and treasure 
writing of all kinds. It, it tells the story of what we're all about. So getting to spanning the gamut here, uh, one of the more contemporary displays uh, was the exhibit of Chuck Berry's scrapbooks. I understand <laughs> these are on loan, but this is something that, that is uh, part of, of what you're showing off. Absolutely. And uh, when um, when the chance to work with the Berry family and the estate came to us, we said, sure, these need to be preserved and saved. And they loved the idea that I wanted to work these in, you know, to the exit. What, what more American Americana would be uh, Chuck Berry's own hand, his narrative in his scrapbooks, as I've talked about narrative. This is a great Americana narrative. So it's scrapbooks are sort of like uh, one author called them writing with scissors. You know, so so that's essentially why why we did that, and it's uh, it's been magnificent that that, and I, I like to see that juxtaposed with the Casey Jones whistle from the folk song. Well, the original is here, as well as say the first uh, sheet music that the that the city ever published, the the St. Louis Grand March. That's on display. You know, so, so that's how this collection dances. You know, it actually it actually is a, is a great dance between many concepts and many American narratives. Yeah, and just such fascinating, just random things in here. One of the things that I couldn't help but be struck by is you have a photo album from General William Tecumseh Sherman. What is in his photo album? Well, he, we have several. He, he actually was a board member here briefly, and he left us a lot of his grand tour albums of, um, of the Near East, but but you also left us great um, American albums of photographs. One of the greatest is, is, is a remarkably rare work, uh, Scenes in Indian Life, Scenes in the Indian Territory. And this is, uh, these are identified Native Americans that were done for the general. Um, five generals received that. His copy came to the mercantile. It's one of our really treasured pieces. Uh, he, 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 he gave us some of our, our truly remarkable um, folio American um, uh, albums. Hmm. You told our producer the other day, a collection like this always keeps giving. Some things we have now may not be fully appreciated until another generation or two. Once something is in this collection, does it always remain in the collection? Or could it be that something's been collected and you look at it and this just doesn't make sense in light of, as you say, you've got some space limitations? Well, in my time, that's not going to happen. I think there's, there's, <laughs> there's, I guess I sort of pretty much am like, that there was an old book collector in this town named William Bixby, and the symbol on his book plate was an omnivorous octopus, <laughs> where each tentacle was holding every book. And, you know, I feel like the strength of this institution is to collect dramatically, often, and as well and as, and as, and as intelligently as possible. If you do that, there, you don't have that, that tendency to think, oh, why did we get this? We need to get rid of that. There's no space for this. And so my entire career I've tried to train others is to collect well and to build and so that we really truly don't burden the future with, with maybe too much of something um, and, uh, and try to do it in a very, in a, in a very eloquent way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this exhibit is certainly worth checking out. I hope people will put together the the week's worth of time they need to visit for seven days. If not, though, there's certainly highlights, as you said, right there in the atrium. People can come check this out. Uh, This is open to the public. It's free, and it's open any hours that the University of Missouri-St. Louis's uh, libraries are open. So there's lots of opportunities to check this out. People can see umsl.edu slash mercantile for more information. We'll also have that on our website, stlonair.com. show. So, John Hoover, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have everyone come and talk to us. We'd love to see everyone. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.